Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Fortunately, I will not be here next Sunday to lead us in our annual ritual of determining who the most worldly, materialistic person at Cornerstone is. For those of you who do not know what I'm referring to, we have a tradition here on the Sunday after Thanksgiving each year. It's very scientific. It always accurate 100% to prove uh, who the most worldly, materialistic person within Cornerstone is. And it's determined by who goes out the earliest Black Friday shopping after Thanksgiving. I think last year's winner, I can't remember who it was, do not say it if it was you, uh, went out on Thursday afternoon. Shame on them. I mean, the, the turkey had not even digested within them. And they're already shopping for the worldly wares of this world. Anyway, that was kind of uh, redundant. Anyway, um, part of me understands why we do this, though, because it can be hard, right? It's hard to find the perfect gift for someone. And uh, I've done this in the past as well. I thought I would try to help you find that gift for the hard-to-buy person in your life, because I've been out and I've seen a few things. I took a few pictures. But um, let's say, for example, you have a Jewish friend. A uh, Jewish friend, and they're hard to shop for, perhaps, and on top of it, the whole Christmas thing makes it a little more awkward because, you know, it's Christmas, and, you know, your kids are doing certain traditions that their kids can't participate in or choose not to participate in, and so it's just, what do you do? Well, I found something for you. May I suggest that you get them the minch on a bench? The minch on a bench. Oi. This is for those who don't want to participate in the elf on the shelf thing, if you don't know what this is referencing. Not only is it culturally sensitive, but it allows them to participate in a fun holiday tradition. You can get this at Target right now, in caps, I think throughout the Hampton Roads area. A few years ago, I showed you this gift. Uh, if you were here a few years ago, you might remember this, the electric gravy boat warmer. And the reason I showed this to you at the time was because I thought, you know, when I, when I contemplate what the purpose of a kitchen appliance is. It's ontological essence, right? What it's been made to do. I think of it as, as either being to take something that's really hard that you do in the kitchen and makes it easier, or something that you do repetitively, right? And it makes it a little easier. So blending, for example. You could blend without a blender, I guess. You could mash it and stir it and whatever you want to do. And, but a blender is a, hot, a whole lot easier, right? I mean, it's just a lot better. So, you know, I look at this and I think, how much gravy do you have to consume to need an appliance for your gravy. I just don't understand that. And I think the joke I said at the time was, if you need an electric gravy boat warmer, you may not have many Christmases left. Uh, well, I was out the other day, and I found another kitchen appliance, something to sit on your counter in your kitchen that makes the electric gravy boat warmer and the reason why you may purchase it um, the least of your concerns, because now you can buy the extra large turkey fryer to keep out all the time, because who knows, you, you fry turkeys every week, I know, therefore you need an appliance dedicated to just that. So there you go, um, if you're looking for something to, uh, for the hard-to-buy person in your life, you have a couple options, we'll, I guess, have Chris uh, next week find out who the most worldly, materialistic person at Cornerstone was, and we'll find out if you bought any of those things there. All right, joking aside, we're here to read <laughs> Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 to 26, as we usually do, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 16 with me. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me for a moment? Jesus, we come now because we desperately need you to speak to us this morning through your word, Spirit. Take these truths that we're going to examine today, and I pray that you will encourage us with them because we're in a battle. Every one of us in this room who's a believer, we are in a battle, and sometimes the battle seems overwhelming, and sometimes we don't know how to respond or what to do. So I pray this morning that we will be reminded that our confidence is in you, that we need to continue fighting, all the while recognizing that you are the one who, as we sang a few minutes ago, holds us fast, and we rejoice in that. Thank you, Jesus, for your time to be able to get, uh, come together around your word. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, based off of the uh, three-week study that we concluded last Sunday, uh, I have defined this phrase here, walk by the Spirit, as living every moment of every day of your life so that the person and truth of Jesus is exalted in you. Now, I acknowledged this last Sunday in passing, but I'll begin this morning by emphasizing it just a little bit more, and that is that this is not how most people, I think, understand this phrase. Uh, it's not so much that I think people have like a, a really well thought out, deeply studied uh, definition of their own that contradicts this in some way, shape, or form. I just think it, a lot of people perhaps haven't really thought it through, and so therefore they're more influenced by our current Christian culture than they are by any real personal conviction of their own. Uh, my experience is I kind of watch people on this point, and this is what I referenced in passing last Sunday, is that I think most people have a, a sense that walking by the Spirit is somehow this mysterious, overly mystical kind of thing, as if it's something that is mostly, if not completely, intangible and subjective and emotional and fiercely personal, in fact, so personal that to question it almost comes across as defensive to, offensive to some people, regardless of one's true intentions in saying it. And I hope that's not been the case. I haven't heard that that's been the case, so I'm thankful for that. My goal has certainly along the way not been to offend, but to inform. And even if you do not fully agree with me on everything that I've presented up to this point, I hope that I have at least prodded you to go back to the Scriptures and to make sure that you understand why it is you believe whatever you believe about this particular phrase. But for now, obviously, I'm going to stick with my definition of what it means to walk by the Spirit. And instead of viewing it as being some mysterious, uh, mystical thing, I'm going to view it as being a very specific and practical thing, as living every moment of every day so that the person and truth of Jesus is exalted in us, that the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, causing then the resurrected life of Christ to be lived out in 
and through us, and that this then has practical ramifications for our lives, which of course is where Paul is now turning here in verse uh, 16. If you'll recall, the whole context of this section is Paul saying that he does not want the Galatians to use their newfound freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, while they may now be free from the Old Testament law, that doesn't mean that they're free to just go out and sin with impunity. Yeah, some things have changed. You know, it may not be a sin now to, to eat a ham sandwich, but adultery is still a sin. You might be able to wear a shirt that's made of two different fabrics now, but, but murder is still wrong. Uh, so, you know, just because we're free from the law doesn't mean that we now have the right just to go out and do whatever we want. Hopefully you remember us talking about that a few weeks ago. And so while the law may be gone, and some things may now be acceptable that were formerly prohibited, uh, there are other things that we just shouldn't do regardless of whether or not there is a law that specifically tells us not to do those things. And the specific word that he used back in chapter 5, verse 13, to talk about the sinful things that we might be tempted to do was the word flesh. Um, again, as you may recall, the New Testament writers tend to use the word flesh to refer to uh, that sinful part of us, okay, our sin nature. That, that this is the piece that Paul tells us in Romans 8, for example, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. In fact, he tells us it cannot, that someone who is in the flesh cannot please God. This is the thing we're fighting against. This is the thing that we are not supposed to use our freedom to indulge. And according to what Paul says here in verses 16 through 18, this is what walking in the Spirit helps us fight against. Now, Paul sets this up for us in a classic if-then format. And if you look at the text, you see the words if and then are not used. But that's still the formula that's being presented here. If we walk by the Spirit, then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And even though it's obvious, I'll just point it out now, and then we'll come back to it in a future message. Uh, the things of the flesh are given, you know, sampling a list of them, a sampling list is given in verses 19 through 21, and a sampling of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit is given to us in verses 22 to 23. So what Paul's telling us then is if we walk by the Spirit, which is going to be exemplified by the things you see in verses 22 and 23, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, such as the ones listed in verses 19 through 21. So does everyone understand the premise of verse 16? And before moving on, I'll just say, that's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? If then statements typically are cut and dry, you know, if you touch the hot stove, then you will burn your hand. Uh, if you show up late to work every day, then you will lose your job. If you give a mouse a cookie, then he will ask for a glass of milk. There you go. That's for all the parents in the room who've read that book too many times, you know. Th these are cut and dry, um, almost absolute predictable kinds of statements. You know, if the first thing happens, then the second thing will definitely happen. And as you read Paul's comment here in Galatians, it's appropriate to read it like that. If you walk by the Spirit, if every moment of every day you are living in such a manner that the person and truth of Jesus is being exalted in you, then, guess what? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh, period, definite, absolute, 100% true. However, what's our problem? Well, the problem is, is that none of us do that all the time, do we? It seems to me that more of us live in the battle of verse 17 than we do in the seemingly certain victory of verse 16. In verse 17 here, Paul acknowledges the state of warfare 
that is actively going on in the heart of every believer. Every believer, he says, has, even after salvation, the desires of the flesh within them. And these desires are not neutral, as if they're just sitting there kind of not doing anything. They become inert, and they're just on the side. You know, they're not neutral. They're active. He says they are against the Spirit. That means they are in active opposition to the Spirit. They have both barrels pointed directly at the Spirit, and they're firing as fast as they can. At the same time, every believer, he says, has what he calls the desires of the Spirit within them. And again, these desires are not neutral. They are against, in active opposition to the flesh. And then he makes it very plain by saying that these two sets of desires are opposed to each other. So if one is going left, the other is going right. If one is seeking to obey God, the other is seeking to disobey God. If one is seeking for ways to do what pleases God, the other is seeking for ways to do what displeases God. If one actively wants to avoid sin, the other actively wants to pursue sin. And Paul says that both of these desires are within each of us who are believers. It's like there's a a battle raging within us. One side warring against the other constantly between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And I just would note that this applies only to believers. You know, this is what makes this a little bit different than how maybe our world would portray the human condition. If you listen to unbelievers talk, it's not uncommon to hear them reference the idea that there's like light and darkness in us, good and bad, and you just kind of have to pick which path you're going to follow. I hear that kind of stuff from time to time from people. But what Paul is saying here is not that. In fact, what Paul would say is that for the unbeliever, all there really is is the bad. That's all they really have. They only have the desires of the flesh within them. They only want to rebel. They only want to displease God. They only want to pursue sin. And this confuses people sometimes because they see unbelievers do what seems to be, in our estimation, kind, good, even righteous deeds. And we would look at this and go, well, can there really be no good in them then? Well, I would answer that by simply pointing to the words of Scripture that no one does good, not even one. You say, well, what about all their their righteousness and their righteous deeds that that look righteous to me? God says that all of their righteousness is a filthy rag to him. It's not righteous in his eyes at all. While on the outside their actions might appear good to us, God can see the true motivations and underlying purposes behind their actions, and he declares them to be not good. And so whatever the unbeliever does, and however good that thing seems to be to us, God sees it for what it truly is and declares it to be sin because it is done apart from and in active opposition to to him. And so if we take God at his word, uh, then it forces us to recognize that the only people in this world who genuinely struggle with sin are believers, not unbelievers. Because the only thing that fights against the desires of the flesh is the spirit, and those who have the, don't have the spirit can't fight and don't want to fight against those fleshly desires. But for us, there is a battle 
raging within our hearts, one that the New Testament writers talk about regularly. Uh, One of the more famous passages addressing this battle is one that you will know very well, but even though you know it, listen to it carefully. This is Paul's very heartfelt comments in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. I mean, who... Who in this room can't identify with that? I mean, it's brutally honest. He can see and feel both sides of this battle, the spirit and the flesh, warring against each other within him. And his cry here at the end, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? I mean, that could have been your prayer yesterday. It might be your prayer today. Who? I'm wretched. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? There's a battle going on inside of us. Another one, uh, Peter, uses similar imagery in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. And I would draw your attention to these words, wage war, because the Greek word that they're translating does not refer to a single battle but to a campaign. And if you think about this from Peter's perspective as he's writing, from his reader's perspective as they're listening, the the campaigns, the military battles they're going to be familiar with are the Roman army's campaigns. And the Roman army could do battle against a single city for years, much less against an entire nation or kingdom. So so what Peter's talking about here is not just like a a single battle, a one-and-done skirmish. It's It's much bigger than that. He's talking about a long-term war, and it's this very same battle that Paul is referring to here in Galatians chapter 5. And as you hear me say all of this, you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is kind of discouraging. (laughs) This long-term battle going on inside me, flesh and spirit, it almost feels hopeless. You feel like, you know, all you ever do is lose And you wish there wasn't even a war at all, and you don't understand why God even allows you to have to keep fighting it. Well, may I draw your attention to the fact that these verses are not intended to be discouraging to you. They are intended to be encouraging to you. In verse 16, Paul affirms that walking by the Spirit will, in fact, enable you to say no to the desires of the flesh. You... you, you're going to win. Victory 
The flesh is already defeated. You say, but it's still fighting. I get that. It's, it's a defeated foe, but it continues fighting. It is not insurmountable. It can't find, win in the end because Christ died on the cross and forever defeated it. So the flesh is done. It's lost. It's still fighting. And we will experience that victory, won for us through the death of Christ, when and as we walk by his spirit. Similarly, at the end of verse 17, Notice the full commentary that Paul gives about this battle that's raging within us. He says, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. Now, there are two different ways that we could interpret this phrase, and each interpretation is going to take us in a completely different direction. Number one, we could interpret the things that we want to do as being the desires of the Spirit, okay? So in this uh, interpretation, what I really want to do are the things of God, the things of the Spirit. Well, if that's how we interpret it, then Paul's explaining to us here why we keep on sinning. Well, here's the reason you sin. It's because, you know, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit, they're against one another. And even though I know you really want to, to do the things of the Spirit, sorry, the flesh, the flesh is winning. The flesh wins out. That, that doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, especially given the context of what Paul is doing here in Galatians chapter 5, the whole purpose of this passage is to show us or to remind us that we should not be using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So why would he have that as his purpose and then come around and say, but it's too bad, you can't help it? And that doesn't, that doesn't fit. Maybe there's another interpretation that would make more sense. Yep, there is. Number two, we can interpret the things we want to do as being the desires of the flesh. In other words, it's Paul acknowledging that what we really want to do is sin. What we really want to do is to rebel against God. And if that's the correct interpretation, then Paul's explaining to us how we can avoid sin. Because these two are contrary to one another. And as we're walking in the Spirit, it will overcome the desires of the flesh to keep us from doing those things we just naturally want to do. So if the things we want to do are the desires of the flesh, then, then Paul is telling us here there's, there's hope. There's real hope. That while there may be a battle, the Spirit is stronger than our flesh and can overcome these things that we just, just naturally want to do. Naturally, people seem to forget this along the way sometimes in the Christian life. Naturally in your flesh, you want to sin. You want to. You want to rebel. You want to displease God, which is why I have said to you now for three weeks almost in a row that if you ever see a moment in your life where you say no to sin, that's a miracle. It really is. This is part of why I said that. If you ever have a moment in your life where you show genuine God-honoring kindness and mercy and love to someone else, miracle. Because that does not come natural to us. What is natural to us is sin. What we naturally want to do is to rebel against God and to displease God. And so if it doesn't happen, it's a miracle. It's no less of a miracle than seeing God raise someone from the dead. That doesn't happen on its own either. God had to step in. You don't say no to sin on your own, ever, ever, ever. If that ever happens in your life, Know that God is as at work. Please do not forget this. And Paul ends then by reaffirming a truth that should be clear to us now. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Well, since believers are the only ones who can have the Spirit, and since believers are no longer under the law, those who are led by the Spirit aren't under the law. Okay, it's just real simple. Their morality, their ethics, their 
authority in life, the way they go about pleasing God, no longer tied to the Old Testament law, now tied to life in the Spirit. Now, let's make this super practical if we can. Because how then do we understand the Christian life? You know, how is it that we're supposed to go out and live on a daily basis? Well, here are four points for you to consider as we think through what it looks like then to walk by the Spirit in daily life. First, I think we need to understand ourselves correctly. I think we need to understand ourselves correctly. And, and, and this is going back to the fact of the matter, which is that we want to sin. Now, we understand that when we think about ourselves before salvation. We say, yeah, well, you know, before Christ I was a sinner, you know, I just wanted to sin. But somewhere along the way, I feel like a lot of us tend to forget that that never actually changes, like within us. That flesh that we had when we were saved is still a part of us now, that, that apart from God's Spirit, there is still nothing good in you, nothing at all. That apart from God's Spirit, there is nothing in you that wants to please God. There is nothing in you that wants to live for God. There is nothing in you that wants to pursue righteousness. That apart from God's Spirit, you are still nothing but a sinner. And I don't think that a lot of us tend to think about ourselves this way. I think we somehow have come to believe that God is fixing us or like reforming us or, or rehabilitating us in some way. And I would just say to you very bluntly, no, no, no. God is not fixing our flesh because our flesh is not fixable. He's crucifying it. And God is not reforming our old self because our old self can't be reformed. He's replacing it. And God is not rehabilitating our sin nature because there is nothing to rehabilitate. It simply needs to die. You're not being fixed or reformed or rehabilitated. You are being completely remade. So just remember that on your own, apart from the Spirit, there is nothing good in you. Your flesh is not getting better. In fact, it's very likely getting worse. Second, and coming out of that one, I think we need to understand our situation correctly then. So then if our flesh is not getting any better, that means that until the day we are finally freed from this body of death, body of flesh, that we are going to be in a battle. Our flesh may not be getting any better, but something has changed. We now have the Spirit. This is new. This is different for us as, as believers. And the desires of the Spirit, Paul says, are opposed to the desires of the flesh to keep us from doing the things we naturally want to do. The Spirit that dwells within us can put to death the deeds of the body, and that's our hope. Through Christ's death, we too can die to sin and therefore live to God. But it, it's going to be a battle. And so you need to live your Christian life with a wartime mentality. To not sit there and be shocked that you're still fighting. Five years, ten years, fifty years into salvation, five minutes, it doesn't matter. Don't be shocked that you're still fighting. Don't be discouraged because you are continually struggling with sin. In fact, I would say to you, be encouraged that there is a struggle because I can guarantee you this much, no unbeliever struggles with sin. No unbeliever struggles with sin. They may not always like their sin completely. They may not always like the consequences of their sin, but, but they don't hate their sin. They love it. They love it. 
Well, if you're a believer, um, you begin to hate your sin, even at the same time that you still love it. Sometimes I think we feel like we're bipolar. It's like, I hate this thing, and I love this thing, and that's that war, that battle that's going on within us all the time. It's there, and it's constant, and so I know you want it to go away. I totally understand that, but just, just recognize that you are going to live in a state of internal war until you are freed from this body of flesh. That is a normal experience of the believer. You heard Paul say it. You heard Peter say it. You've heard me say it. I'm the least of those three, all right? Third, I think we need to recognize that walking by the Spirit is an act of faith, okay? So if this is going to be a state of constant battle, I need to get a wartime mentality. How am I going to live on a daily basis from the morning I wake, uh, moment I wake up to the moment I, I go to bed at night? What, how am I going to fight? Because you don't go into battle unless you know how you're going to fight. So if you're in a battle, how are you going to fight this thing? Well, the first thing is you fight it by faith, by trusting Christ, not just for salvation, but for sanctification too. Paul's comment in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which I've put up the last few Sundays. I won't put it up today, but you know it. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Uh, nevertheless, it's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, by faith, I am trusting in the gospel to live out this Christian life by the Spirit, to live every moment of every day so that the person and truth of Jesus is being exalted in my life. That's to live a life of daily faith dependent on the grace of God. Now, we understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but so many of us then turn around and just instantly forget the sanctification is too. Sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the cry of our heart every morning and all day long should be, Jesus, live your life through me today. Jesus, please the Father through me today. Jesus, say no to sin through me today because I can't. Just like you couldn't save yourself, you can't, you can't live in a daily manner that pleases God on your own. So walking by the Spirit is living by faith in Christ each and every day to live out his resurrected life in and through us. And then fourth, I think we also need to recognize that walking by the Spirit does require action on our part. You know, this is the classic tension that we feel throughout Scripture and in our daily lives. That there's a part of all of this, the major part, the main part, that is all done by God, and yet, at the same time, we're somehow called to participate. I'm told that, that I have to walk by faith, but then I'm told to go out and obey. It's both. And it's not either or. It's not do I, do I have to trust Christ alone or do I have to go out and do all these things? No, 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 it's not, it's not either or. It's, it's both and. We are both dependent on Christ alone and we are commanded to fight. And I'll just share my own personal conviction on this point. Not that it's worth much, but I hope it does reflect Scripture. Um, the longer I fought this battle and the longer I have lived as a believer the more convinced I have become that the weapons of our warfare are neither physical nor spectacular. Uh, what I mean by that is that no one is going to defeat the flesh by the flesh. I don't care how smart you are, how committed you are, um, how much self-control you have. or th <laughs> I don't care what you put in place, what safeguards or anything else. No one, 
No one defeats the flesh by the flesh. Our, our weapons are not physical. Neither are they spectacular, meaning they're not like, you know, not waiting to get zapped by God with a lightning bolt or, you know, wake up one morning and there's a, a cloud of angels surrounding me and it's going to be some amazing moment. No. God seems to work through much less spectacular means. He works through the ordinary ways of grace that he's given to us, prayer, the scriptures, and the people of God. So, you know, you, you say, I really want to have victory over sin. I really want to, to have victory in this daily battle. Well, it's great. Say that, but then make sure that you're doing something about it. First of all, be in God's word. That's not a small thing. Read it. Memorize it. Meditate it. It's only by God's word that, that we're able to overcome sin. The Spirit takes the word of God and uses it in more ways than we can possibly ever know. Be a person of prayer. Not just at like dedicated times, like in the morning when you're doing your Bible reading or something, but, but all day long. Develop a habit of being in a, in a state of constant communion with God. Just big and small things, little in and out. Just, just constantly. And don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. You know, I've noticed a trend over the past 10 years of pastoring. And that is the colder someone's heart becomes, the more they seem to disengage from God's people. And then conversely, the, the more zealous or eager someone's heart becomes for the things of God, the more they seem to engage with the people of God. That's not a hard and fast rule or anything. It's just an observation on my part. I don't know if it applies to everyone equally. But the one thing I've never been able to determine, though, in that is which one is the chicken and which one is the egg? You know, is it the people's heart grows cold and that's why they disengage? Or do they disengage and that's why their heart grows cold? And vice versa on the other side too. So which one comes first? I don't know. It's probably different for each of us. Just recognize that God has placed us together to fight together. That's part of the beauty of the body of Christ that we can be here for one another in this battle and we cannot neglect that. Now finally... Someone may say, well, why doesn't, why doesn't God just stop the battle altogether? Like, why, doesn't he, why doesn't he just zap me or something and, and take the struggle away? I'm tired of fighting. I, why? Why leave us in this state? Um, well, I, I'm not uh, probably the most qualified person to answer that question, both from my age and experience, I, but I'm look to others who have answered the same question. And I've got a book here, uh, Wise Counsel. It's a collection of letters between John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and a younger pastor named John Ryland Jr. Uh, Ryland was just getting started in ministry, and he struck up a friendship with Newton. And the two of them corresponded for years and years and years and years. Uh, we don't have very many of Ryland's letters, but Ryland saved Newton's letters that he sent to him because they were so good. And eventually he published them. This is just another copy of those published letters. And in one of these letters to Newton, Ryland, uh, we get a little snippet of it in Newton's letter back, but Ryland was complaining about this very point. I'm tired of the struggle. <laughs> and he's a pastor, right? He's like, he, he, just based on how it's written back, he must have been like, you know, when I'm up there and I'm preaching, I feel like, you know, then I'm powerful, right? I've got God's power in me, but the rest of the week, I'm, I feel dull. There's a struggle here, and I wish there wasn't a struggle. And he even uses the word stupid, not in the sense of in intellect. He feels like his spirit, his, his pursuit of righteousness is like he's stupid in it. He, and so he writes this letter to Newton, and Newton responds, not just for Ryland as a pastor, but you'll hear it for, for all believers. And so I'm going to read this to you. Bear with me just for a moment. It's a little bit longer. But as you hear this, 
you'll hear some moments where he clearly talks to to Ryland as a pastor. Well, remember, you may not be a pastor, but you are a minister of Jesus Christ who is cleverly disguised as something. So apply all of these comments to you regardless of your occupation. I think you will find it helpful. You're going to listen for two specific concepts, the idea of our dependence on Christ and the idea of our usefulness in ministering to others. Newton writes, this is April 1773. Dear sir, you ask me in your letter... What should one do when one finds oneself always still, quiet, and stupid, except in the pulpit? Is made useful there, but cannot get either comfort or sorrow out of it, or but very rarely. You describe a case which my own experience has made very familiar to me. I shall take the occasion to offer you a few miscellaneous thoughts upon the subject of a believer's frames, and I'll pause there. By frame, he means their emotional state the state of their heart, okay, as they're just interacting in life. How are, how are they feeling? How are they responding? So he's going to address that. He goes, and I send them to you not by the post, but from the press, because I apprehend the exercise you speak of is not peculiar to you or to me, but is in a greater or lesser degree the burden of all who are spiritually minded and duly attentive to what passes in their own hearts, whether they are ministers or not. As you intimate that you are in the main favored with liberty and usefulness in the pulpit, give me leave to ask you what you would do if you did not find yourself occasionally poor, insufficient, and, as you express it, stupid at other times. Are you aware of what might be the possible, the probable, the almost certain consequences if you always found your spirit enlarged and your frames lively and comfortable? Would you not be in great danger of being puffed up with spiritual pride? Would you not be less sensible of your absolute dependence upon the power of Christ and of your continual need of his blood, pardon, and intercession? Would you not be quite at a loss to speak suitably and feelingly to the case of many gracious souls who are groaning under those effects of a depraved nature from which, upon that supposition, you would be exempted? How could you speak properly upon the deceitfulness of the heart if you did not feel the deceitfulness of your own? Or adapt yourself to the changing experiences through which your hearers pass, if you yourself were always alike or nearly so? Or how could you speak pertinently of the inward warfare, the contrary principles of flesh and spirit fighting one against another, if your own spiritual desires were always vigorous and successful and met with little opposition or control? The Apostle Paul, though favored with a singular eminency in grace, felt at times that he had no sufficiency in himself so much as to think a good thought. And he saw there was a danger of his being exalted above measure if the Lord had not wisely and graciously tempered his dispensations to prevent it. By being exalted above measure, perhaps there may be a reference not only to his spirit, lest he should think more highly of himself than he ought, but likewise to his preaching, lest, not having the same causes of complaint and humiliation in common with others, he should shoot over the heads of his hearers, confine himself chiefly to speak of such comforts and privileges as he himself enjoyed, and have little to say for the refreshment of those who were discouraged and cast down by a continual conflict with indwelling sin. The angel who appeared to Cornelius did not preach the gospel to him, but directed him to send for Peter. For though the glory and grace of the Savior seems a fitter subject for an angel's powers than for the poor stammering tongues of sinful men, Yet an angel could not preach experimentally, nor describe the warfare between grace and sin from his own feelings. 
And if we could suppose a minister as full of comforts and as free from failings as an angel, though he would be a good and happy man, I cannot conceive that he would be a good or useful preacher, for he would not know how to sympathize with the weak and afflicted of the flock or to comfort them under their difficulties with the consolations wherewith he himself in similar circumstances have been comforted of God. It belongs to your calling of God as a minister that you should have a taste of the various spiritual trials which are incident to the Lord's people, that thereby you may possess the tongue of the learned and know how to speak a word in season to them that are weary. And it is likewise needful to keep you perpetually attentive to that important admonition, without me, you can do nothing. I don't know why God doesn't just zap our struggle sometimes. I don't know why he doesn't just take it away, but something in me tells me that Newton's probably on to something here. If we didn't struggle, we wouldn't constantly need Jesus. If we didn't struggle, we wouldn't be able to relate to all the people around us who do struggle like that. And so I would encourage you today, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged in the battle. Don't give up. Rather, fight. If you haven't been fighting up to this point, then leave here today and fight. Die to self. Walk by faith. Be in the scriptures. Be constant in prayer. Engage with God's people because these are the weapons of our warfare. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, this battle is real. It is within each of us. We feel it. We know it. It's unique to each person. I couldn't possibly guess all of the many battles that are raging in this room right now. But I know that even though we are now in you, the desires of the flesh are continually at work within us, waging war against the desires of the Spirit. But we have a promise that the desires of the Spirit will overcome. If we walk by faith in the Spirit, we will not gratify those desires. We continue to be weak and foolish people. And on our own, our own, we can't do this. And so we ask that you give us the faith to walk in you, to be dependent on you each and every day, to be content knowing that you are too good of a father to ever give us a single thing that is not for our good. And so even in the struggles of life, we can see that you're good, that you're at work, that you're helping us, preparing us, molding us, shaping us, making us useful for ministry to others and keeping us dependent on Christ. And I pray as we go out then and fight, as we're in your word, praying, surrounding ourselves with your people, that we will remember that it is not us who holds on to you, but as we sang earlier, you're the one who holds fast to us, and that is our confidence, your grace, your love, your goodness, your steadfastness, your unchangeableness. May our confidence lie in nothing and no one but you alone, Jesus, we ask in your name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.